American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. In the wake of World War II, the New Deal, and the Depression, American policymakers, both in and out of government, moved towards a new model of thinking about the way that economic policy can provide steadier growth and a less bumpy ride for all actors in the economy, drawing on the lessons of the Depression and the successes of the New Deal in World War II, which had seen the U.S. rise to this undisputed status as not only one of the great military superpowers, but really the dominant industrial economy in the world. They decide that just as the economist John Maynard Keynes had, had counseled, the way to manage an economy to provide that stability and steady growth was to use government spending to prime the pump whenever a recession seemed uh, imminent, in other words, to support demand, and also to use monetary policy, how much the government borrowed, how much money it printed, to slow down runaway growth and prevent inflation. This consensus shapes U.S. policy, shapes the U.S. economy, and in a lot of ways shapes the world economy for the next 25 years. This consensus, however, would not last. And as we get towards the end of this section, we'll talk about some of the elements that were already in play earlier in this period, early in this period of 25 years that would undermine the Keynesian consensus. Now, the Keynesian policies implemented in the New Deal in World War II were to a large extent ad hoc. There were policies implemented just for the needs of the moment, not because of any particular uh, conscious thought about the need to implement Keynes's ideas. But that changes after World War II, and you see a much more concerted effort. Just as Keynesianism is becoming the orthodoxy of the economics profession, the U.S. also passes, Congress passes, in 1946, the Full Employment Act, which creates the Council of Economic Advisors. Now, this is a group of economists and policymakers who advise the president, and their mandate is to help the president and the federal government in general to take on and fulfill the responsibility of providing full employment. Full employment des doesn't necessarily mean 0% unemployment, but it means something as close to that as possible. Now, another piece of the Keynesian policies that emerged in the late 1940s is driven by increased military spending. Escalating confrontation with the Soviet bloc, especially after 1948, leads American policymakers, Congress, and the executive branch, the president, to increase defense spending to previously unheard of levels at least during peacetime. In fact, by the early 1950s, the U.S. will essentially be spending at a wartime level, not quite as high as World War II or World War I, but pretty close to that. This, of course, is going to help to drive employment in the economy in some ways. But there's also concern that defense spending, which to a large extent necessitates uh, the federal government running high deficits, is going to push the U.S. Uh, into an inflationary spiral. spiral. is going to push the economy into that inflationary spiral. President Truman, the successor to Franklin Roosevelt, essentially decides that that's simply not going to happen. He announces that that is not something that the federal government is going to worry about. It is going to be possible for them to have both guns and butter, as they put it. And as it turns out, to a large extent, that works well, at least for the time being. It wouldn't work so well later in the 1960s. But part of the reason why the federal government's policy works is that it supports the aspirations of all kinds of actors in the economy and helps to deliver a situation 
in which they can all experience the benefits of steady growth. Take big business, for instance. The U.S. economy, to no small extent, has dominated more than ever before or ever since in the early 1950s by a set of large corporations like U.S. Steel or Ford and General Motors and so on and so forth. These companies like Keynesian policy. They like the so-called mixed model in which the government actively intervenes in the economy on a sort of continuous basis. Now, in more recent times, those who are thought of as the, uh, the delegates or the representatives of big business often state that they oppose high federal deficits. They oppose uh, large-scale government intervention in the economy. Now, whether this is true that they oppose it or not in the present is a different story. But that wasn't even something that was, that was said in, in the early 1950s. They simply like Keynesian policy. And the reasons why are pretty simple. Keynesian policy, uh, frequent interventions and in the economy, control of steady growth, all of these things delivered stability for big businesses. They, it allowed big businesses to know how much supply costs were going to increase, how much labor costs were going to increase, what the likely size of their consumer market was going to be. And so this produced predictability. And it also produced a lower level of conflict with labor than had been the case in U.S. industry in some time. All right, so what does Keynesian policy do for workers? A good way to take a first look at this is to look at the 1953 and 1954 recession. As the recession emerges, as rumblings of economic trouble emerge on the horizon, as it were, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Arthur Burns, announces that he's going to fight this recession uh, with employment-supporting policies by increasing government spending. This keeps people uh, at work, keeps them in jobs, and that keeps demand high. The 1953-54 recession turns out to have what is called a soft landing. And this provides a great deal of opportunity uh, for workers to experience stability. In fact, you could say over the entire 1950s, uh, this relative stability of the economy gives workers a lot of bargaining power. Relatively high employment uh, means that companies uh, are reluctant to carry out policies uh, that are going to bring them into conflict with their workers and mean that they have to hire other workers. And that, in turn, provides a lot of leverage for labor unions. Labor unions, may, by and large, are very successful in the 1950s. Uh, they write and sign very successful contracts that provide steady increases in wage rates for workers. This is part of an overall shift in the economy from the 1920s to the 1960s in terms of income and wealth from the top 1 or 5 or 10 percent downward uh, in the wealth pyramid of the society as a whole. In fact, there has never been a time in U.S. history uh, where the bottom 90 percent of the population had such a high percentage of income overall. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.